Um, once again, the largest outdoor church service will take place in New Zealand. We'll have more people going to a church service than they have happen on a Sunday. Anzac Day. Why do people go, do you think? What's that? Tradition? Tradition? Gratitude. Gratitude, yeah. What's that? Respect? Remembrance. Remembrance. There's lots of really significant reasons to go. Together with Australian troops, 8,566 um, New Zealand soldiers landed on a Turkish beach. Oh, if you could swap over to the um, Mac and attempted to establish a bridgehead, and of those 8,500, 2,721 were killed or died of disease, and 4,752 were injured. And at that time, I'm told, I'm, that's the way I get myself out from this, I read this somewhere, okay, I'm not certain it's true, I'm told that it was approximately 2% of the New Zealand population at the time. Which is massive. The scale of the defeat and the cost and casualties were shocking and it was all complicated by a power structure which had some uh, British officers making some calls that history would come to question. One of my granddads was an Anzac. He was an Australian soldier, so feel free, hate me now, that's fine. Um, and he survived, but more than that I don't know because they had one, uh, one child and that was my... Um, my mum, and uh, neither my mum or granddads are available. Historians say this marks the beginning, the coming of age of New Zealand. They say that up until then, New Zealanders had thought of themselves as an outpost of the empire, part of the motherland, the homeland. But after this tragedy, New Zealanders started talking about New Zealand in its own right. We don't, you'll have noticed, speak so much about the British Empire. Well, actually, the language of British Empire started to decline. And it was such a big thing that in almost every town around New Zealand, you will find memorials. There's one in New Brighton. Where's the nearest one to here, do you think? I have no idea. If you have lived in a small town in New Zealand, there will have been an Anzac memorial. It's, it's commonplace. And on that, you will find, greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. And here in the picture here, that's troops um, arriving on the beach that they thought that they were going to spend a short time on. Um, that um, middle black and white photo is of the first Anzac commemoration in New Zealand. And obviously the last one is a recent one. Now, I come from the generation that um, was, didn't experience wars, um, but as kids we played with them. I built airfix model planes. Um, I think probably other people my age here probably will have. Um, I grew up watching Hogan's Heroes, MASH and Dad's Army. I, um, I'm a sucker for war movies, uh, but I haven't seen war and I am unqualified to talk about war. Uh, and I kind of, I'm really aware of that. And actually in New Zealand where, well, most of us would say we haven't been invaded, we don't know what war looks like, most of us. This is a famous painting um, called Guernica. It's, um, Picasso painted it, and he tried to paint it to show a, a stylized version of a bombing in Spain. And actually, he does a really good job in terms of showing the horror of war. 
what emotions come to mind when you look at this. There's a gored horse in pain. Women crying over the bodies of the dead. If you're wondering about the bull, we think it's representing uh, President Franco, but we're not certain. This is pre-photography trying to say this is what war is like. It is full of suffering and pain. You don't wish this on anyone. Now, I, I, I think Anvac Day is brilliant. I think we don't, we don't stop and recognize our tūpuna, the people who came before us. We don't tend to do that easily and actually recognize the costs of those who serve in times of war. But what are followers to Jesus to do with war? Again, I want to say I don't feel qualified, so instead I'd like to tell you three stories of people who were involved in wars of some kind and just invite you to think about, well, what might that mean for me? Now, for most of us, we have things like the Ukraine war, these huge things that are floating out there and, you know, just continue to go on. And we feel very powerless about those. They all start somewhere. And so in the process of telling these, the stories of three people, I'd like to invite you to think about the conflicts there are that simmer in and around your life. They don't even actually have to be your conflicts, but at your workplace where you can see something going on, at home where you keep rehaving the same arguments, with friends, just if you can see if God brings to mind a place of conflict. And then I'm going to tell you three people, but uh, the stories of three people, but before I do, there's something I have to acknowledge, which is that there are some issues for Christians here. And one of the issues is that in the Old Testament, Abraham has promised a land, and then in Exodus and Numbers and Joshua, and it turns out that there are people already in that land. And so there are wars over the land, and the Israelites invade and kill lots of people on what looks like God's command. There's a little hint in Genesis 15, 16, where Abraham is spoken to of God, uh, by God in a dream, and God says, uh, he predicts the slavery that's coming in Egypt, and then he says, oh, and in the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So there's a hint there to say there might be some reasons for this. But still, there are passages that read uncomfortably if you are uncomfortable with scenes like this. I am. For the most, and I'm in reasonably good company, for the most part when people focus on the questions of how could God affirm a war, they tend to ignore the larger context, the character of the nation God's trying to create, its emphasis on caring for foreigners and outsiders. They tend to read it without that. And it's worth noting that in later life, in Psalms, when Israel reflects on what happened in the war times, the emphasis is on God rescuing, not on Israel's military might. Okay, so, but still, I want to acknowledge there is an issue here. People will raise it, and actually, it's, it's worth raising. Okay, but I'm not going to solve it. If you are interested particularly in this, um, I have a copy of Chris Wright's book called The God I Don't Understand. It is well worth a read. It covers this really well. It does not resolve it, as I am also not doing. <laughs> okay. So, I'd like to tell you the story. The first person is Abigail. Abigail, who staved off a war over sheep by standing in the gap. War might be overplaying it a little, but 
what there is is there's a really foolish rich guy called Nabal who owns a flock of 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats nearby, and it's shearing time. And, you know, the Bible keeps bringing up race, putting it in our face. He's a Calebite, so he's an outsider, and we know he's a fool because his name in Hebrew literally sounds like fool. Okay, so it's, it's a little bit of cartoon character stuff in here. Anyway, he's a rich guy, he, um, and it turns out that in the mountain ranges nearby, not yet King David, um, and a heap of his men have been camping, hiding from King Saul, and they've been careful of Nabal's sheep, and they've probably seen off some sheep rustlers and certainly the odd bear or lion. So it's shearing time, and in a move not unlike that of a mafia guy, David sends some of his men to Nabal with a hint that sounds like um, asking for protection money. Now, they had been protecting, so it's not an entirely unfair request, but, you know. And, and it's not, it's kind of like, oh, you want to look after us as well as the shearers? And Nobel is true to his name. He doesn't just say no. He wraps it up with insults. Who is this David, he said? Who is the son of Jesse? So many servants breaking away from their masters today. News gets to David, and he is ropeable. Strap on your swords, guides. For him and 400 men are armoring up for a fight, and the lifespan of all the men in Nabal's party is about to be significantly reduced. And then some of Nabal's servants come to Nabal's wife, Abigail. They say, there's trouble afoot. Your husband has poked the bear. He's picked a fight with the wrong guy. What can you do? And Abigail says, oh, what am I going to do? She... Then she thinks, great, she gathers up a really big food parcel, because the issue here is, well, you're going to provide something to help us, and gets a whole bunch of servants and goes out to head to meet David before he gets here. When she does, she apologizes, gives the food and drink, and explains that her husband is a moron, and says, spare this. And then, this is, this is the verse that leapt out at me, she says, when you are king, my lord... My Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord's success, remember your servant. It's just interesting because she was smart enough to go, it's not just that you're going to kill all these people, but you're going to carry the weight of that all your life. And how is that going to affect you? And David ends up coming to his senses, thanking her for keeping him from bloodshed and tells her to go home in peace. Abigail goes home and uh, was going to tell her husband, but he is too well lubricated um, to take it. So he, um, she waits till the next day when he has a hangover, <laughs> tells him what just about happened, and he pretty much has a heart attack and dies. And you know what happens next in the story? David says, uh, oh, that was quite impressive. You'd make a good wife, wouldn't you? So David marries Abigail. And he thinks she's wise because when he was caught up in his emotions, she saw past of it, and she saw that there would be a cost to this needless bloodshed, that he would regret it. So what do you reckon? Marks out of 10 for Abigail? I'll give her a 10, absolutely. She puts herself on the line for peace. No guarantees it was going to work. She stands in the gap. And that's just a story, eh? I mean, later when, when David is king, you get a hint of just a little bit of a follow-up. When David is king and he wants to build a temple for God, 
not just a tent like there's been traveling around. He, um, he, has this, he makes this statement, but God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. Interesting, eh? So, albeit, yes, there's some war, there's some holy war kind of stuff in the Bible, there's also this sense of, hang on, this thing is not scot-free. Okay, that's the first person, Abigail. Going to move on to the second person. And at this point, I'd like to acknowledge Steve Taylor. Um, He's from Dunedin for his research on the story. Steve has been the principal of a couple of theological colleges, one in Canberra and actually at Knox until relatively recently. When he was in Canberra, he went to an Anzac Day um, uh, service and uh, looked at the inscription on the Royal Australian Navy memorial plaque, expecting to see the first date would be 1915, wouldn't it? No. You know what the first date is? 1860. And do you know where their first campaign was? New Zealand. To quote from a history book, here's what had happened. Um, So this is a historian speaking. There are more and more settlers... It's 1860. There are more and more settlers arriving in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Settlers want land. And the land of the Waikato is beautiful. It is being farmed, expertly farmed, says the historian, by local Maori building their own wheat mills. There are 18 mills in 1853, confidently selling fruit and vegetables to the booming town of Auckland. There's a flood of settlers coming in now. This is my language, and they want land. And the New Zealand government starts recruiting troops, including from the Royal Australian Navy. And the first thing the troops do is build a road, a road that would be useful, say, if you wanted to transport cannons, if you wanted troops to go over this road. And the road goes into the Waikato. And then in 1861... The New Zealand governor visits Māori in the Waikato and says, among other things, he makes a speech and he's quite bald in it. He says, "Um, you can hold on, um, you can retain your land as long as you can hold on to it. Remember, there have been troops amassing. And a Māori leader, Wiramu Tamihana, stands to respond. Now, Wiramu Tamihana is a significant man of mana, He is the man who held a Bible when when the first Maori king was appointed. He held a Bible over his head to indicate that even the Maori king would be subject to the rule of scripture. So Wiramu Tamahana stands up. Here he is. And he reads from scripture. The scripture he reads is Ephesians 2. 13. But in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's an older translation. Here's what he says. Now we know this because some scribes wrote the governor's speech, but they also wrote his speech in response, and it was sent back to England, and um, we have these records from the English parliamentary records. Okay. He said um, this. In Christ Jesus, the one who turned the other cheek and said, put down your sword. The one who said, blessed are those who persecute you, and then on the cross, Father, forgive. In Christ Jesus, once you were far off, you governor from England, you royal Australian navy, you settlers from Ireland and Scotland. 
made nigh, that's brought near by the blood of Christ, that peace is possible. That please, if you start singing Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, should also sing until the end of Psalm 23, you prepare a table of goodness and mercy for all of us forever and forever. Wiramu Tamihana is quoting scripture. Not just Psalm 23, but Ephesians he quotes Ephesians because Paul struggles with different with Jews and Gentiles and how do we bring them together? And Willemu is saying that's how it's supposed to be. He's trying to school the English on how races might be together right so that we might get to the end of Psalm 23. The Bible has been written and printed in Maori and Willemu has studied it. And as I say, we know the speech because it's written down and recorded in the Great Britain Parliamentary Papers. So that's the good news. Well done, Willemu. The not so good news. Well, unlike David, the governor would end up with the staggering burden of needless bloodshed. The Royal Navy got to use the road they'd built and their cannons. In 1864, the land war in Waikato killed 4% of the Maori population. Now, maybe it was 2% of um, uh, the New Zealand population for Gallipoli. Um, and that included a lot of women and children. Uh, which Anzac did not. So when we're remembering Anzac, we probably need to pay attention to us as well, but while we do, let's just pause for a moment and hold on to Wiramu Tamihana, kingmaker and peacemaker. I'm proud of him. He stood in the gap, he spoke truth to power, he called people to remind them, this is what Christ is here for. Namihi Nui. Tough thing about war is we don't always win. But he spoke truth well. He reminded people of the Jesus way. And maybe he was one of the inspirations to Tafiti in the Parihaka story. Okay, that's the second person. Third one, well, a little aside here. This is apparently um, uh, the, the sword of St. Peter. Who's to say? that uh, disappeared for a long time, apparently that's the one, that, you know, when the, um, when the servants come to arrest Jesus, um, Peter pulls out a sword and has a, has a whack. And now, it seems like you're always on risky ground if you defend Jesus, thinking that Jesus is unable to defend himself. And in this case, Jesus, who has spent the night wrestling with God and has actually asked God, will you take this cup away from me? In John, he says to Peter, put away your sword, shall I not drink the cup? The Father has given me. Which I find fascinating because there he is at the start of this time in Gethsemane. It's like, oh, can you just take this? I do not want this. And at the end, he's in a different place. I still don't want this, but I'm going to it. And in Matthew, he says, um, it's recorded, he says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. This kind of sense of be careful with war, we can become the thing we're fighting against. You don't stand in the gap like that, so put down your sword. So the third person has to be Jesus, who lays down his life for others. Here in a nutshell is God's response to the pain and suffering we see in Picasso's painting is that Jesus joins in. A trustworthy saying in Timothy, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I'm the worst. 
There are big names for what we think Jesus' standing in the gap and his dying accomplished. There are some who say it's uh, the ultimate cosmic battle between heaven and hell, and by dying, Jesus won. And that's got some truth in it. There are some who say Jesus shows you how to engage in conflict, how to defeat evil. Do it like this, put down your sword. There's truth in that. There are some who say that God is love and we are called to love. There's got to be truth in that. In the last century, the church has talked a lot about sacrifice and what sacrifice might have accomplished. But we don't always hold on to that, do we? In our culture is still some hints. We can sing onward Christian soldiers marching as to, yeah. What is really clear is that the brokenness of this world grieves God. It was not okay and God had to respond. And he did it in a way of joining in and that there was no obligation on God to do this. This is a gift. He models grace and love. He could have rolled up his sleeves and said, right, let's break a few eggs. But instead, he allows himself to be broken. And when Paul is talking to some people in a bit of a conflict, he ends up saying, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The good news of bringing the peace that Jesus talks about the peace that's not superficial peace of wallpaper over the cracks, but the peace on the far side of complexity as people actually get to be who they are and love holds them together. Difference is neither hated or hidden. So, three figures to think about for conflict in and around your lives. Abigail, who jumped quickly to try and stop the proverbial hitting the fan. Wiramu, who had to stand up facing an amassing army in our territory and speak truth to power. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Don't do this. Or Jesus, I think the hardest figure of all, which is to let go of power to respond to war by taking up a stance of powerlessness and for which he pays a high price. I don't know if they're helpful for you. Pause for a moment, think about, could you think of any conflict in your life? or in someone else's life around you. And maybe reflect for a bit about those three people. One who's called to jump in. I want to be careful with that one. <laughs> one who calls to speak loving truth to power and one who lays down his life. New Zealand Pākehā are not that great with conflict. We're really uncomfortable with it. We'd like to just push it away, sweep it under the carpet. But I think in those three cases, you see people who engage in conflict well. They do things that don't always work, and I think that is the fear. It may not work. But in the end, 
if you're wanting to follow Jesus, it's going to be, you are going to have conflict and what is going to matter is how we do it well. So at this point, I'd like to pray and I don't, do we have a, we're not, what are we going to do? Hold on. Have I lost? Yep. We're just going to do a benediction after that. Is that right? Yep. Okay, cool. Okay. Let's just pray. Appreciate you standing up, Mark. <laughs> hey, um, well, here we are, God, the people that we are. And we look at war in Ukraine and wish that it were different. And all those ongoing, ongoing, wearing, eating people events in Syria, the long-going one between Palestine and Israel, and then there's our country, and we shift slightly uncomfortably when someone talks about our wars. Conflict can be a gift. We would love to do this well. We are deeply grateful that you love us, deeply grateful that you promised to lead us to that end of Psalm 23, we're all, and confess that sometimes we are more interested in where I or we or mine. So lead us, Prince of Peace, into your ways. And this Anzac Day, may we stop and remember those who went before us and live in such a way that maybe future generations might look back at us and say, yeah, they did that well. Amen. As I say, slightly awkward stop. Uh, we're going to have a blessing benediction. It's our habit to do this. If this has raised something for you and you'd like to pray with someone else, we'd love you if you have the opportunity to do that. So approach someone you think they look like they're not too imposing. Ask if they would pray. Um, there's tea and coffee next door. Oh, and next week, baptism and induction, and we'll do a lunch afterwards, so bring and share lunch. I'll put that in the newsletter so that we don't have to rush off anywhere. Um, would you join me in saying this together? And warning you this, um, next week, Hannah, you're going to have to say this to us. Okay, we're going to say it to you. Okay. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Amen. Thanks. Say hi to someone.